Hey guys, Maurice Merrick here, and I want to tell you about a great car event that's coming up May 15th through the 17th. My friends at Drive Toward a Cure invite you to join the Aliso Ranch Getaway in the Santa Barbara wine country. It's an all-inclusive getaway of cars and camaraderie for classics and exotics. Three days and two nights at the premier Dude Ranch-inspired hideaway, the Aliso Guest Ranch and Resort. And in case you're not familiar with Drive Toward a Cure, they are all about focusing the car community on a great cause, which is Parkinson's research and patient care. So if you're anywhere near the Southern California area and you want to get in on a great car event, you can learn more at drivetowardacure.org. Get away to the wine country, May 15th through 17th. Once again, more details at drivetowardacure.org. In all the different eras of automobiles, there's nothing ever like these after World War One. You know, the things that make these cars fun and exciting only exist in this time period. Driving a 525 cubic inch four-cylinder car with dual chains humming away in the back, you know, you just you can't duplicate that experience anywhere else. It's like driving a World War One airplane on the road. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from points all around the compass. It's finally spring here in the Northern Hemisphere, and that means car events and lots of classics back out on the road. And today we'll be talking about touring in some of the most rare and special machines you can think of. Cars from what we call the Brass Era, which is pre-World War I. Many of these cars are among the finest ever built, and they're surprisingly capable. On Saturday, April 29th, Bonham's Motoring will hold its two-generations auction in Middletown, Rhode Island. It's a group of largely brass-era cars collected over a span of six decades by a father and son team who passed away recently within a short time of one another. And although their estate is keeping things low-key and they've chosen to remain anonymous, The cars and their caretakers are well-known in certain circles. And my guest today is just the guy to tell us about these charming automobiles. Evan Ide is a senior specialist at Bonhams, and he's worn lots of hats in his career, including historian, curator, and restorer. And as you'll see, he speaks from first-hand experience behind the wheel and also turning wrenches on many antique motor cars. And then the day after the Two Generations auction is the second annual Audrain Veteran Car Tour in Newport, Rhode Island, put on by the Audrain Automobile Museum. So it promises to be a great weekend, and I'm hoping to make it out there myself. Now, if you haven't followed Horsepower Heritage on your favorite podcast app yet, smash that follow button right now, leave me a five-star rating and a quick review, because as I always say, it helps new listeners discover the show. One more thing, stay until the very end today because I've got something special I want to tell you about. All right, I've got fantastic history for you from the first great era of the motor car. My guest is Evan Ide from Bonhams, and that's coming up right after this. Hi guys, Maurice Merrick here, and I want to give you a few things to check out at ModelCitizenDieCast.com. First, there's the Jaguar E-Type Lightweight from 1963. That's in 118th scale by AutoArt. 
Or how about a 1956 Alfa Romeo Giulietta Sprint, also in 1/18th scale? Or if you're into Japanese supercars, there's the Nissan Skyline GTR V-Spec in 1/18th scale. You can find these and many more scale model cars at modelcitizendiecast.com. Enter promo code HERITAGE at checkout for 10% off your order. That's a special deal for my listeners. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's ModelCitizenDieCast.com because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Evan Eid, great to talk to you. I'm excited about learning more about this auction that's coming up. It's the Two Generations Collection, Saturday, April 29th in Middletown, Rhode Island. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Evan, I, I really would like to get into your bio a little bit because you've got a fine arts degree. You're a former museum curator, and you've authored several books, including one on the Packard Motor Car Company, which I'm really interested in reading myself. I kind of have a, there's a special place in my heart for Packards. I'm not quite sure why, but they're just very interesting cars. And you're a senior specialist at Bonhams. How did you get into old cars in the first place? You know, I grew up being very interested in, you know, any kind of vehicle as a kid and wasn't ever that interested in the sort of latest and the greatest from the factories. I was always interested in, in older stuff. In high school in the 90s, you know, older to me then was, you know, finding cars from the 60s or, you know, maybe even something from the 50s. You know, there wasn't that much really old stuff around, but I was was reading up on it and sort of studying it, but I could never really get my hands on anything particularly old. I mean, people would give me cars that, you know, to me were old or 30 plus years old to work on and do stuff with, but I never really got my hands on the old stuff. And then you know, I went to school and I was studying fine arts and I was, my plan was I was going to work in a museum. <laughs> so I happened to uh, luck out and, and land at, you know, one of the best antique car collections in the country at the Lars Anderson Museum in, in Brookline, Mass, which is an amazing collection of cars. You know, it's, there's 14 pre-World War One cars there that are all one owner cars in their original garage. <laughs> so it's, uh, there's nothing like it in the whole world. And he bought the best of the best. So it's absolutely just a staggering collection. So when I got my hands on the cars and finally got a chance to, to deal with these cars intimately, I basically never looked back at that point. Well, I know you've got a deep knowledge of the dawn of the motoring era, right? So mm-hmm. I'm really interested to hear your perspective on some of the lots in this auction. We should say that the collection is being offered anonymously. These are two gentlemen, father and son, who were collecting for over six decades. Mm-hmm. Everyone, especially on the East Coast, knows who these guys were, but they both unfortunately passed away in the last couple of years, but the family has chosen to maintain their privacy. So we're not going to tell anyone who we're talking about, but a little digging and you can find out. There's a little bit of mystery be- behind this, but needless to say, it's a fantastic collection. And we're going to talk about a number of the lots that are on offer. Now, most of these cars are brass era cars, right? So we're talking about pre-1915 automobiles. Yep. So the primary focus of the collection is that era. There's a few on either side, but primarily it's rooted in generally referred to as, you know, the horseless carriage era, brass era, um, from the dawn of motoring up to World War One defines that period. Let's talk a little bit about the characteristics of a brass era car. Obviously, a lot of automotive technology was invented in the first few years, really. Uh, there's a lot of things that we think are innovations, but actually they've 
they've been around since the beginning. Oh, uh, <laughs> I can tell you chapter and verse on that subject. I mean, that you're hard pressed to find any mechanical innovation in automobiles that wasn't attempted or used in that period. Basically, everything was tried before World War One, and the only limitations really were material technologies and electronics. You can find anything, you know, hemispherical combustion chambers, overhead valves, you know, dual overhead cams, every different form of ignition system, carburation. I mean, they tried all of it, all the different kind of braking systems, transmission systems. You've got sequential gearboxes, constant mesh gearboxes, planetary gearboxes. The great thing about this time period and what I really love about it is it is just dense as can be. You know, there are so many different kinds of cars and they're all so different from each other. I mean, the variety of cars in this era, it makes other eras seem like they're all kind of the same. <laughs> you know, they're they're just so radically different in all the different configurations. You know, you've got everything from one-cylinder cars to 12-cylinder cars. You know, you've got just all these various attempts. And also, you're in an era of the highest quality. You know, they never would spend on an automobile to produce it like they did in this era. You know, it's just like these opulent uses of bronze and brass and incredibly labor-intensive ways of doing things and elaborate castings and all. It's it just, it just a great era because in a way, the car was so new and was so reserved for, at least on the early days, for an extremely wealthy clientele that there was no budget on these things. The people would pay anything for the car. There was no car that was too expensive for the market. So you just have this great period where it's just like super indulgent in a way as far as like what they did and the scale of it. There's just thousands and thousands of manufacturers, and there's just a limitless variety of stuff in the era. Yeah, you know, the way I think about it is it was a technological renaissance. So much like the renaissance period in Europe, where you had all these wealthy patrons spending a fortune on the finest artwork, right? Yeah. Same was true, uh, you know, in the early motoring years. And then basically 1920 onward, it was just about refinement. You know, the, the die had been cast yeah. in terms of the technology and, and now we're just refining. So exactly. I think there's a, there's a couple of factors, you know, the fact that it was the thing also that really engaged the best minds of the era. You know, the people who were interested in mechanical things, you know, the great minds were drawn to this. This was the accessible thing. You know, aviation was coming in, but that wasn't as accessible as this. And, you know, locomotives have been around for a while, but the automobile was the exciting thing. And that really, not only did it get a lot of people involved, but it got the best people involved. And that's why the stuff is so good in this era. The great stuff in this era is so special because of, you know, the people who were involved in the talent, both engineering and the craftsmanship. Evan, let's touch on veteran car touring. The auction is going to be kicking off the Audrain Veteran Car Tour weekend. And of course, the Veteran Car Tour is on Sunday, April 30th. But the auction is the, the day before. Now, there's some signature events around the world, of course, like London to Brighton, England every year. I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on specifically touring with these cars and your own experiences. And you know, because it's such a different type of motoring. Well, one of the big appeals of these cars is the is the usability of them. And there are lots of events. There's some very famous events, high caliber events, but then there's there's local events all over the country. And there's very active groups, mostly centered around the Horseless Carriage Club, uh, which is quite an active thing. And in some ways, there's probably, it, it, <laughs> there's probably as much as you can do with cars like this as there are for later cars, uh, just because there's so many very specific events for these things. 
the oldest event in all of motoring is the London to Brighton Veteran Car Run, which has been going on in its current form since 1927. And it occurs every year, first Sunday of November in Hyde Park, London. Yeah, it's about 70 miles. You drive to Brighton on the coast. So you're basically going from London to the ocean. And it's the great, it's like the greatest event there is. I mean, it is such a cool event. I do it every year. And not only is it all cars made before 1905, but there's like four to 500 of these things on every year. So I've been on years where they've had over 500 cars. And I mean, you don't go in any old car event. I don't care how old the car is. It's 500 cars on it driving, and they're all from this era. And again, the I mean, the variety of the cars and the quality of the cars is just, I mean, it's really something. I mean, everybody's into cars should at least watch it, go over and see it once in their life. It, the fun thing with that event, too, that people don't realize is that, you know, compared to a lot of events for other kinds of cars, the average age of the competitor in that event is very, is really quite young in comparison. And it's such a multi-generational event at this point. You know, there's lots of cars that just have like teenagers driving them. You know, there'd be like four teenage girls in a in an Oldsmobile or, you know, or something. And, and then you'll pull up next to the car next to you and there's, you know, a young couple when there's two baby seats in the back of the thing, you know, with kids. You, you set out of Hyde Park and you're there in London traffic with all the regular cars, you know, getting, making your way to Brighton. But I'll tell you that because you're covering, you know, out of a city into the country to the coast, you experience the full landscape, big hills, downhills on motorways, on little roads, a million roundabouts. By the time you get to the Brighton and see that finish line, I mean, you feel like you <laughs> like climb Mount Everest. I mean, no matter how, when I've done it, what I've done it in, the, the satisfaction you get of pulling into the finish there is like, you know, because sometimes it can take six or seven hours to get down there. You really feel like you've accomplished something. Yeah, it's a parade, right? And there's people all along the route cheering and absolutely the whole way. If you get it on a nice day, especially, and they give the newspaper will publish a guide, so all the little kids are there checking off each car as it goes, and you know people are out all day watching this thing. And they start all the cars in groups, so they do them in waves um, by age. So the oldest cars start first, and then the newest cars start last. It takes you know, an hour and a half or so to, to launch all the vehicles off. So the oldest cars get a little bit of a head start and uh, it, it works out quite fair that way. Yeah. And it's great that the Audrain Museum has started their own veteran car tour. This is going to be the second annual. Many more to come, I hope. Fingers crossed I'll be there. Oh, great. It was a lot of fun last year. It's a very nice event. The roads are really good. Um, it has a very different but similar feel to the london brighton it's a little easier because you're not coordinating vehicle in downtown london getting it back from brighton you sort of start and stop in the same spot but roads are beautiful the those guys do a great job with all their events and uh we had a great time last year and i've got preparing I got like five cars heading down this year so we've got a full contingent down there well, Evan, let's get into some of these lots. I've made my picks. I think you've got a few you want to talk about. So d do you want to start? Well, I'll, I'll start with you know my personal favorite anyways of the bunch, the uh, 1906 Thomas Flyer, one of the more mythic uh, names in early American motoring and arguably one of the most important American cars of this era, you know, in some ways the most 
you know, one of the most important American cars of all time, because it's the really one of the first American cars to ever really win a major event on the international stage and really kind of it marked a turning point from the high end of, of the industry being European focused. And then it becomes much more American focused after that point. It's the first time an American car went head to head with the best of Europe and, and won on the biggest stage when they won the New York to Paris race, which was a huge deal. That race was like just followed intensely and, and uh, the media for it was was enormous. By the way, for people following along on the website to see the cars that we're talking about, the 1906 Thomas Flyer is lot 510. So if you're checking it out on the website right now that's the car that evan's talking about and new york to paris the route was east to west across the continental united states then on a boat to i think the yukon and then another boat to siberia across russia all the way to paris almost fourteen thousand miles in 19 uh, in uh, 1908 yeah seven eight yeah yeah and it was unassisted it's hard to believe, you know, it's uh, an amazing accomplishment. And uh, incredibly, that car survives. Um, that the Round the World Thomas is at the uh, National Auto Museum, the old Hera collection. And that is what cemented that brand in history as, as its significance. But the cars themselves were really exceptional, particularly in that era, you know, between four and seven thomas is just really off among the best in the world at that point and incredibly ambitious cars for that time period you know in that era most american cars were single cylinder two cylinder cars you know centrally mounted motors you know high ground clearance machines and their cars were four cylinder inline chain drive four speed transmissions and the motors you know were 525 cubic inch four cylinder motors you know, these cars were tested before they left the factory to do at least 65 miles per hour, which they would do without any problem. Um, and even by much later standards of that era, they're incredibly high performance. You know, it, it's an incredible car and it, it's an incredible thing to drive today because of its performance. But to, to put it in the context of when it came out, you know, America was not, 1905 or six was not, you know, on the same level as the uh, Germans or the French at that point. You know, they, they the French especially had almost a ten year head start on the American car industry. So we were a little, you know, slow to catch up. But Thomas wasn't. I mean, Thomas was. They had their sights set at Mercedes and and Panhard and Fiat early on in the game. The, you know, the best cars in the world, and they were going to build something to rival that, and they did. And they're they're really the only American car to accomplish that in that 1905-1906 period. Yeah, and that you mentioned the displacement of this massive four cylinder. I'm just picturing a five and a half inch bore and a five and a half inch stroke. That is yeah. enormous. Yeah, until you've actually held one of those pistons in your hand, you don't quite get the scale of it. Uh, you know, because it's a beautiful engine and it's set beautifully into the uh, uh, engine bay, but the you don't get a sense of how big it is. Um, until you actually hold that piston in your hand. You know, the displacement of it was, you know, wildly bigger than, you know, most cars, uh, uh, certainly American cars at the time. But the fact that it was so engineered just beyond that, like the whole car, the complete package was so beautifully engineered. And if you look at the quality of everything and the engineering of all the small details and the fittings, and those cars are extremely rare. I mean, of all the great American cars of that time period, Thomas is, is arguably the rarest of the bunch. We offered the last four-cylinder chain drive Thomas 
that's come to the auction market, and that was 13 years ago. And there are only two original 19.6 cars in existence. So, you know, Mercers and things are extremely rare, but these are the rarest. I mean, there's nothing rarer than one of these. Have you watched um, 1922, the show that is a spinoff of Yellowstone? I haven't watched it, but a friend of mine supplies the cars for it, <laughs> one of which is a Thomas. Um, okay, so that's I, that's why I mentioned it, because that red Thomas touring car in that show is amazing. Yeah, that's a 670, Thomas. That's a little bit later car. Um, yep, the six-cylinder version. And uh, yeah, those are quite impressive. And they came out a couple years after this and uh, basically took that five and a half by five and a half design and added two more cylinders. So it's one of the largest six-cylinder motors ever, ever in an automobile. And uh, they're quite a performer. In the show, that's Timothy Dalton's character's car. And he's kind of a snidely whiplash type of guy. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> he does a very good job, but the car is a character as well. And um, I, I like that show for that reason. There's some pretty amazing cars in there. A lot of Model Ts and so forth. When I saw that Thomas for the first time, I was like, oh, wow, look at that thing. Yeah, they're they're impressive. And that guy who, the, the owner of that car, he drives that car. He puts thousands of miles on that car every year. That thing is everywhere. All right, so that's the Thomas. Once again, that was lot 510. Okay, my first pick, Evan, is lot 511, which is the 199 Duroc model 4060 Speedster or Runabout. Yep, yep. So this car is one of the sports cars of its day. 422 cubic inches. It's a four-cylinder, and it's a bi-block. Explain bi-block. Well, that's um, it's unusual in that era for bigger engines to be cast in one piece. Like the Thomas, we were just talking about that. Each cylinder is its own casting. So it's got four cylinders, it's got four cylinder blocks. The Dirac is in, in somewhat the more common vein where the, the, two, the cylinders are cast in pairs. So each block contains two cylinders. In either case, they're attached to a separate aluminum crankcase. So the engine block bolts to the crankcase. The cylinder block is cast iron and the case is aluminum. Some cars, I don't think Dirac was in this case, but some cars would, some French cars used the same cylinder block and would offer a two-cylinder car. And then on the the larger crankcase would use the same block to make a four-cylinder car. But I don't think that's the case with that, with that Dirac. And Alexander Dirac was, um, he made his fortune as a bicycle manufacturer. He got in during the bike craze of the 1880s and so he was like many early automakers in that he started in bicycles, like Colonel Pope, for example, did the same thing. Exactly. That was a, there were a couple of common paths into the automotive world and uh, bicycles were, were probably the most common. Oh, E.R. Thomas, we were just talking about, that was also, he was a bicycle manufacturer, Lozier. If you were tooled up to do that, it wasn't that dissimilar to then branch into the automobiles, especially when they first started with automobiles because they were much simpler. Um, I've got a 1902 Dirac in, the, in my shop here right now. And the construction of that, it's a tubular chassis with brazed lug joints on it. It's very much a bicycle type construction for the for the chassis. Uh, but the rest of the car is, you know, the automotive specific bits are beautifully engineered. Uh, Dirac is an exceptionally well-designed car, very, very innovative car for its day, uh, extremely high quality and also really a very expensive car, particularly in the U.S., any of these French cars that came to the U.S. new in this period, especially early on, were subject to massive duty. 
the duty made them twice as expensive as they were in Europe over here. So you had to be extremely wealthy to afford a French car. Yeah. And it's a two-seater, like I said, a speedster or runabout, a sporting car, open car. It's got these wonderful sort of airy fenders. The car actually is probably fairly light despite its size and uh, quite a performer. In fact, Dirac was one of the early contenders in the Vanderbilt Cup races, right? Yeah, Dirac was racing uh, very early on, uh, almost from day one. They were active in all the major international races and were quite successful. And uh, yeah, in the Vanderbilt Cup, in the Gordon Bennett races, in the, uh, in the big Grand Prix in Europe, very much was their focus for developing their road cars was racing and the publicity that went with it. They, they were working on land speed record attempts, all sorts of things. And that pattern there of the sort of speedster style is what you'll see a lot of road cars that kind of emulate the racing type configuration of the period. You know, people wanted a high performance, you know, as close to a race car as they could get for the street. So that that look comes about from there with the big gas tank on the back and the uh, the, the minimal open style, which is is very much the racing format of the day, except for the with the fenders on it for the street street use. But that was your kind of sporty configuration. Dirac is interesting because it's a very short wheelbase car, um, which is unusual for the size of it. You know, we talked a little bit about just the touring and the and the kind of brass car thing in general. And this car brings up a, an aspect of that where, you know, this whole hobby of vintage cars, you know, it starts with these cars. You know, this hobby starts in the 20s, getting old cars and appreciating for what they are and restoring them. And that car was owned by one of the first prominent collectors in America, George Waterman, who had begun collecting cars in the early 30s, if not the late 20s. He's a wealthy guy. Um, he had a, another friend who was another wealthy friend, and they would uh, go to all the other these kind of wealthy households and dig these things out of the carriage sheds. You know, they weren't even that old cars, but these these very valuable cars tended not to be junked, a lot of them. So they were pulling great stuff, you know, like that Dirac. Uh, and in Waterman's case, some of the greatest cars that survive are cars that he had and and then accumulated and had probably a collection of 100 cars before World War II. So it, it's a funny thing where the antique cars is a sort of a niche today, but it is what this hobby starts with. and. Because you have to put in perspective where there's probably more 1965 Mustangs. There are more 1965 Mustangs than there are all of the antique cars in the U.S. And as far as great antique cars, you know, the really important ones, there's probably less than 150. So it's a very small segment of a very big hobby, but a very important and very active one. Yeah. And, you know, you made me think of something just now, which is that the original owners of these cars, they weren't just drivers. They were automobilists, right? They had a technical interest and affinity, and you had to be mechanically minded to operate one of these. It wasn't as if you just got in and pushed a button and hit the gas and you were off. You really had to know what you were doing. I mean, in as much as mechanical devices were present in everyday life, there wasn't a lot, right? And most mechanical devices were operated by trained people. So the automobilist, that term, it really does mean something. And if you look at the books in the era, you know, I've got this set of books that is kind of a technical overview. And I almost think it's published as much for the owner as it is for the prospective owner of a car. And the amount of technical information in this thing, the thing is huge. It's like, you know, two giant library bound books, but all these incredibly elaborate fold out technical 
diagrams of every car. They were selling these cars on their engineering and their design. You know, they weren't selling them on cup holders and nav systems, and, you know, zero to 60 times. It was the, the engineering, the mechanics of them was the interesting thing. And that's what was selling the cars. And, you know, if you look at the books sold to motorists in the era, you know, they're, they really get into the, the car, but they're very good at explaining how to do everything in a actually fairly simple manner. But they did expect you to use it. And I think that was a lot of the appeal of the car in that era was that it was just an all around exciting piece of technology. The thing that I compare it to, Evan, is in 1980 or 85, people who were into computers were kind of building their own personal computers. They really had to have a lot of technical know-how. And then, you know, by 1995, 2000, it's proliferated technology where the average person can begin to understand and operate it. You're exactly right. And I think you could take a lot of different technologies and see a very similar trend in that they start off being quite technical, appealing to core enthusiast group. And it also, I think in the case of computers, probably if you go back to 1980 and list out the number of different computer manufacturers, it's probably a ton of them. And there's probably an incredible variety to the machines they're making. And it's kind of like the after World War One, where everything's about sort of consolidation and standardization and everything becomes kind of boring in comparison. And I think the same thing happens with, with computers. You know, all these different companies making this sort of exciting stuff at the beginning all kind of merge. And, you know, there's three or four companies at the end of the day. And I think what some of it is what happens is that I think at the beginning of a lot of this stuff, it's dominated by the excitement and challenge uh, more than it is dominated by financial return because none of these cars if you look at in this time period are being designed by bean counters you know they're being designed by people who are like really passionate about this stuff and great point they just wanted to build a great car they they weren't getting rich out of it and uh and that changes you know that becomes very different a few years later um you know if you look at there's a be a good chance to touch on one of the other cars there's a pierce arrow uh 1911 I think it's an 11. Uh, yeah, it's lot 532, the 1911 touring car. Uh, Pierce is a great example of um, no bean counters, <laughs> where uh, they're a really high-quality car, very high-quality chassis, beautifully engineered. But the bodies are the thing that really is the most crazy on those cars as an example of, of this era. So. At this time, Pierce made three distinctly different chassis sizes, a 38 horse, a 48 horse, and 66 horse. And each one of those probably was offered in at least a dozen different body styles. And each of those body styles was unique to those chassis. And all of those body styles were cast aluminum. And none of the dozen different bodies shared a single casting. So, you know, 36 different bodies, every piece of that body was its own giant aluminum casting. So it's just, it's mind boggling that anyone actually, you know, thought that was uh, financially a good idea in a, in a way, you know, made an extremely high quality car with you know, wonderfully solid thing. But can you imagine the ambition of doing that? And if there was an accountant looking at this, I mean, that, that would be the first thing they struck out of the thing. And, and Pierce continued that. They didn't stop doing that till like 1922. You know, the body styles would change year to year and scrap all of it. Yeah, incredible. I mean, you can look at a Pierce and immediately know there's something different about these cars versus their competitors at the time that most of them were wooden framing and then sheet metal 
over that. But even if you don't know that the Pierce body was a casting, there's just something different. You can sort of perceive it even if you don't know the history. Yeah. Well, they look different because there's things you could do with castings you couldn't do with uh, paneling and wood then. So they, they took advantage of it. And and yeah, all you have to do is knock on the side of them and you, they sound <laughs> totally different from a, a body with you know, 50,000 aluminum skinned over wood. Particularly if you look at the cowl area where the cowl meets the hood of a Pierce Arrow, it's fairly apparent that, yeah, this is one big casting. Oh yeah, exactly. And interestingly, you know, they were another Buffalo, New York company like Thomas. And the the 06 Thomas, which is unique, I think, just to 06 and 07, has that cowl, which looks a bit like the Pierce Arrow, is actually cast aluminum in that era. And one kind of interesting piece of trivia, I know you know this, long after Pierce Arrow folded, their V12 engines powered fire engines for many, many years. In the 1970s, it was the second longest production run American engine. I think second only to the Ford uh, Flathead V8, I think was the other one that had the second longest run. But yeah, they were Seagrave fire engines were still using them in the 70s. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Evan, my next pick is lot 519, which is the 1910 Cadillac Model 30 touring car. Four cylinders, 30 horsepower. Uh, This is out of, formerly was in the Indianapolis Museum. And so Cadillac was billed as the standard of the world after 1908, right? Because they had won the Dewar Trophy, which was a manufacturing and engineering prize, as well as a performance measurement of motor cars. And just a little bit of background on the Dewar Trophy. So Cadillac shipped several cars to England. They were disassembled. All the parts were thrown in a pile. And then later they had to assemble them once again, which proved that the interchangeability had been more or less perfected by Cadillac, right? And so that's why they became the standard of the world, which is a slogan that they used up until I think the 1990s. And Henry Leland was an amazing guy. He made Cadillac a premium brand. And this is a great example of that that Henry Leland era, right? Yeah. No, you're right about the uh, interchangeable parts. Um, That got them a lot of attention. They had built the reputation on making a very good single cylinder car. They made very late um, from 1903 to, I think they still made some even 1909, but they switched right from singles to the fours and the, they, they won their award with the single cylinder car. And it was a great example of how American cars were being engineered and built versus how the European cars, especially the English cars were being built because the, um, English uh, were still very much bench fit things, you know, where they were made to a certain tolerance and then they were hand fit. So the parts were not interchangeable. And Leyland and, you know, Ford and others here really uh, perfected the idea of having these vehicles not be bench fit and have them made in a precision manner so that any piece from any vehicle could be interchanged. And it's funny, that was something that Americans really perfected uh, over the Europeans. And it's something that continued that didn't really take hold, particularly in the aviation industry over in Europe. Because I know during World War II, the American method of manufacturing, when we received um, Rolls-Royce engine designs and things from uh, to build here during the war, Ford and, and Packard and others incorporated this interchangeable ability that wasn't in these things. Its drawings were not even really dimensioned out into these final tolerances because they were all assumed to be bench fit. And um, so it's something that was very much prevalent early on, but continued really into World War II on the, on the aircraft front and, and on the high-end car front. 
It's so funny you mentioned that because a few months ago I did an episode on the Rolls Royce Merlin. That's exactly what you're talking about. And there's still sort of debate for some crazy reason in the aviation enthusiast community or you know among historians. Oh, which is the better, the Rolls Royce built Merlin or the Packard 1650 Merlin? Right. But there were fundamental differences in how the assembly process went. And as you say, hand fitting was sort of the diff the the main difference. Uh, that's not to say one engine was superior over the other. They they, they were just simply different. And Rolls Royce had constraints, and also manufacturing in the English tradition. And Packard had a completely different approach. And Packard, you know, if you look at what they received, you know, the amount of horsepower they're developing when they received those engine designs and and what they were producing horsepower wise when they were finished you know their final iteration that packard built there's quite a dramatic difference uh you know and how that engine was developed by packard versus how it was developed by rolls royce and and i think the precision manufacturing had to play into that uh potential development but it, it's interesting because it they didn't glamorize it in a way you know and i think the european cars have always had more you know, even in that era, there's sort of an allure about this sort of hand aspect of it. But the interchangeable parts promoted by Cadillac and Ford and others, you know, it was applied in a less glamorous manner to mass producing cars at a lower price. But it was a superior way of doing things to then develop a superior product in the long run. You know, it was a more precision way of building things. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and so this Cadillac, this is a very comfortable touring car for, I mean, it's not the most powerful touring car of its era, certainly not the biggest displacement motor, but a very solid product, very comfortable, excellent for these vintage events. Oh, very, yeah. The, the 9 and 10 era Cadillacs are, they're a good car in that era. You'd call them like a medium car, medium price, medium size. Um, you know, good, good quality, kind of a sweet spot of not too big, not too small the right kind of level of performance and the the right amount of quality without being you know excessively expensive or, or complicated. It was a very smartly designed car. It sold very well and it solidified their their reputation. And uh, you know it's, it's unusual. Uh, there's a lot of things that are different about them. You know they don't have conventional cylinders. You know the cylinder is a it has a copper water jacket kind of pressed on for the water chamber and a detachable cylinder head that is like threaded onto the top of the cylinder. It's, it's different. It's a very different approach. But they they had a lot of success with those. And two years later they'd have the you know the great success of introducing electric start or the first uh, production car to really ever have uh, an electric starter on it. So it was a very in, a very innovative company in that era. Yeah, absolutely. And that was the very early association of Cadillac with General Motors as well. Yeah, because Leyland starts Cadillac and then he is out of Cadillac and starts Lincoln. So he's responsible for our the two American uh, premium brands. Yeah, very interesting. And then, of course, the consolidation by that time in the motoring industry is well underway. And one by one, they start to be acquired or they go out of business. Yeah, you know, the, the, the industry was never going to support the number of different car companies. And, you know, in a way, cars start off as kind of a regional product. There's a lot of local companies building cars very specific to those regions. You know, in New England here, where I am, in New England alone, there were something like 2,000 different car manufacturers just in New England. So, obviously, a big chunk of these are, are going to, you know, go away fairly quickly. 
But from a standpoint of of creating a viable automobile industry with part support for cars and volume and standardization, you know, things were going to have to become more boring. You know, the car the car companies were going to have to merge and consolidate, and standardization was going to have to occur. And also, these companies, you know, like Thomas is a perfect example. You know, incredibly innovative and you know, cutting edge product in 1906. But by the time they go out of business, they're not making a product that's very different from what they were making in 1906. So, you know, to revamp everything and keep up with the changing trends, it just wasn't financially feasible for these companies, you know, because as cars got more common, they were going to get cheaper. All right, Evan, you have another pick for me? Yes, lot 524, the uh, Pope Toledo Model 35 Raw de Belge Tourer. That's a cool car. That's, um, that's a very advanced car for 1906. It's four-cylinder car. It's chain drive with three-speed transaxle, uh, kind of like the Cadillac we were talking about. It has a copper water jacket cylinders, but it's it's fully overhead valve, which is quite innovative for 1906. Most cars were side valve, and it's quite a quick car. It scoots down the road really well. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's one of the highest quality cars of that era. You know, the body on that thing is like fine furniture. You know, it's got cabinet drawers and all these pumps and valves and all these beautiful wooden handles and it's an incredibly opulent car and one of the most interesting things about that car is if you look at the bodywork you know this is a, a steel-bodied car in 1906 every single panel is complexly compound shaped like the incredibly elaborate um, curvature to these panels and most people would tell you that there were no cars made in that era that had compound shaping in the panels you know, that it's just generally assumed that panel work was either curved or flat, you know, flat panels, not with compound curves like that. But that car, there isn't a straight line on the thing. And uh, that raw de Belge terminology there that comes from the fact that the king of Belgium had a body made with that style and was like the first publicly seen body with that opulent curvature. And the name is always just kind of stuck at that point is always used to describe that kind of body. Yeah, which is interesting because as you get into the coach built era later on, you see those namesakes, right, appear more and more. And this is uh, you know, an interesting counterpoint too, because you say about the the coach built and and that's one thing with these American cars we're talking about, is they're almost all sold with their bodies and were where the bodies were built in-house or built by a, a bodybuilder for that company, uh, as opposed to a lot of the English cars or the European cars, which were sold as chassis. And you would then find a coach builder to to build your body. Rolls-Royce, up until you know the 40s, or I think the 40s, even the 50s, was never sold with bodies. They were always sold just as chassis. But the uh, American cars were quite different in that respect. Yeah, interesting. You know, I want to mention... The cars that we've been talking about are not going to be cheap. They're some of the rarest of the era, and their price is commensurate with that. But there are quite a few Model Ts in the auction that are on the affordable side. So if somebody's interested in getting into this era of motoring, that's a great place to start, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And that's just one of the things I like about this auction is that not only are there some you know really spectacular high-end cars, there's some very affordable cars in here. Uh, like you said, the Model Ts, and there's a couple other smaller cars of other makes. Um, but yeah, no, there's almost there's something really for just about every price range as far as a vintage car, and and all these cars are really quite good. And would some of them need you know a little finishing or you know a little bit of sorting out? But none of them have you know 
would take all that much to get up on the road and 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 using them and a model t is a is a great uh, first vintage car, you know, there's, there's nothing like, you know, model T is, is a blast. Um, especially if you can get a, you know, brass radiator car, you know, one of the 16 or earlier cars are really charming and a lot of fun. And the good thing with them too, is you get a, you can get a car that will keep up with a lot of more expensive cars in the era, you know, not just because it's inexpensive doesn't mean it doesn't perform well or that it isn't high quality. A model T is, it's an inexpensive car, but it's a very high quality car made of the finest materials of the time, just extremely efficiently designed and built. They're great cars, and uh, I can't recommend them. I, I've owned several myself over the years, and you know they're they're just they're great things. And there's some really good ones, uh, Model Ts in this uh, in this offering. And the great thing with the Model T is anyone can get into this with one because there's such a knowledge base out there. There's you know, uh, the Lang's old car parts, which is here in Massachusetts, which is one of the biggest worldwide suppliers of Model T parts. You can get just about any part, you know, new or used, you know, instantly for one of those. And, um, you know, they're, they're just, they're easy. You get one of those for, you know, a few thousand dollars and, you know, you're just tapped into this whole world of information and, you know, you can get really hooked on them. We should also mention, in addition to the cars that are on offer, there's a ton of automobilia that's going to be in the auction. Give us an idea of some of those items. So uh, anything that was in general of a decorative nature uh, in this era, brass items, lamps, uh, signs, posters or models or pedal cars, um, trophies, photographs, pennants. And this era is particularly fruitful for the decorative stuff just because of the time period which these things are made in you know great artistic stuff related to the car and because the car was so special and so new and so expensive you know they made these really high-end things you know for to appeal to these guys into motoring so there's all these great decorative products that go with the automobile in this era that don't really ever you don't really see after this time period so it's uh it's a lot of fun and this stuff is quite rare and the two collectors here, the younger one especially, was incredibly savvy for this and scoured the globe for the best of the best stuff. So, you know, some very rare things and, and exceptional examples of them. All right. Well, listen, I think this is going to be a very interesting auction. I Hopefully I'm going to make it out there. It's the Two Generations Collection, Saturday, April 29th, Middletown, Rhode Island. It kicks off the Audrain Veteran Car Tour weekend. I've got a link in the show notes. You can go to bonhams.com and check out more. Evan Eide, thanks for being with me. Yeah, thanks so much, Maurice. It was fun. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. But before we go, I want to tell you about my next episode. This Saturday, I'll be at the Bring a Trailer Alumni Gathering at the Motoring Club in Los Angeles. And I'll be sitting down with Bring a Trailer's Randy Nonnenberg for the first ever Horsepower Heritage Live. And the event is book solid and it's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope to see some of you there if you've already made your reservations. And then that episode will be available on Wednesday, May 3rd. So like I said, we're recording live. It should be a really good time. Don't forget to tell a friend about the show and leave me a five-star rating and a quick review. And I'll see you back here on May 3rd. And until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.